Chapter Thirteen of Summer by Edith Wharton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The town hall was crowded and exceedingly hot. As Charity marched into it, third in the white muslin file headed by Ormer Fry, she was conscious mainly of the brilliant effect of the wreathed columns framing the green carpeted stage toward which she was moving and of the unfamiliar faces turning from the front rows to watch the advance of the procession. But it was all a bewildering blur of eyes and colours, till she found herself standing at the back of the stage, her great bunch of asters and goldenrod held well in front of her, and answering the nervous glance of Lambert Solace, the organist from Mr. Miles's church, who had come up from Nettleton to play the harmonium, and sat behind it, his conductor's eye running over the fluttered girls. A moment later, Mr. Miles, pink and twinkling, emerged from the background, as if buoyed up on his broad white gown, and briskly dominated the bowed heads in the front rows. He prayed energetically and briefly, and then retired, and a fierce nod from Lambert Solace warned the girls that they were to follow at once with Home Sweet Home. It was a joy to Charity to sing, it seemed as though for the first time her secret rapture might burst from her and flash its defiance at the world. All the glow in her blood, the breath of the summer earth, the rustle of the forest, the fresh call of birds at sunrise, and the brooding midday languors, seemed to pass into her untrained voice, lifted and led by the sustaining chorus. And then suddenly the song was over and after an uncertain pause, during which Miss Hatchard's pearl-grey gloves started a furtive signalling down the hall, Mr. Royal, emerging in turn, ascended the steps of the stage and appeared behind the flower-wreathed desk. He passed close to Charity, and she noticed that his gravely set face wore the look of majesty that used to awe and fascinate her childhood. His frock-coat had been carefully brushed and ironed, and the ends of his narrow black tie were so nearly even that the tying must have cost him a protracted struggle. His appearance struck her all the more, because it was the first time she had looked him full in the face since the night at Nettleton, and nothing in his grave and impressive demeanour revealed a trace of the lamentable figure on the wharf. He stood a moment behind the desk, resting his finger-tips against it, and bending slightly toward his audience, then he straightened himself and began. At first she paid no heed to what he was saying, only fragments of sentences, sonorous quotations, allusions to illustrious men, including the obligatory tribute to Honorius Hatchard, drifted past her inattentive ears. She was trying to discover Harney among the notable people in the front row, but he was nowhere near Miss Hatchard, who, crowned by a pearl-grey hat that matched her gloves, sat just below the desk, supported by Mrs. Miles and an important-looking unknown lady. Charity was near one end of the stage, and from where she sat the other end of the front row of seats was cut off by the screen of foliage masking the harmonium. The effort to see Harney around the corner of the screen, or through its interstices, made her unconscious of everything else, but the effort was unsuccessful and gradually she found her attention arrested by her guardian's discourse. She had never heard him speak in public before, but she was familiar with the rolling music of his voice when he read aloud, or held forth to the select men about the stove at Carrick Fry's. 
Today his inflections were richer and graver than she had ever known them. He spoke slowly, with pauses that seemed to invite his hearers to silent participation in his thoughts, and Charity perceived a light of response in their faces. He was nearing the end of his address. "'Most of you,' he said, "'most of you who have returned here to-day, to take contact with this little place for a brief hour, have come only on a pious pilgrimage, and will go back presently to busy cities and lives full of larger duties. But that is not the only way of coming back to North Dormer. Some of us who went out from here in our youth, went out like you to busy cities and larger duties, have come back in another way, come back for good. I am one of those, as many of you know." He paused, and there was a scent of suspense in the listening hall. "'My history is without interest, but it has its lesson. Not so much for those of you who have already made your lives in other places, as for the young men who are perhaps planning even now to leave these quiet hills and go down into the struggle. Things they cannot foresee may send some of those young men back some day to the little township and the old homestead. They may come back for good." He looked about him, and repeated gravely, "'For good. There's the point I want to make. North Dormer is a poor little place, almost lost in a mighty landscape. Perhaps by this time it might have been a bigger place, and more in scale with the landscape, if those who had to come back had come with that feeling in their minds, that they wanted to come back for good and not for bad, or just for indifference. Gentlemen, let us look at things as they are. Some of us have come back to our native town because we'd failed to get on elsewhere. One way or other things had gone wrong with us. What we'd dreamed of hadn't come true. But the fact that we had failed elsewhere is no reason why we should fail here. Our very experiments in larger places, even if they were unsuccessful, ought to have helped us to make North Dormer a larger place. And you young men who are preparing even now to follow the call of ambition and turn your back on the old homes, well, let me say this to you, that if ever you do come back to them, it's worth while to come back to them for their good. And to do that you must keep on loving them while you're away from them. And even if you come back against your will, and thinking it's all a bitter mistake of fate or providence, you must try to make the best of it, and to make the best of your old town. And after a while—well, ladies and gentlemen, I give you my recipe for what it's worth—after a while I believe you'll be able to say, as I can say to-day, I'm glad I'm here. Believe me, all of you, the best way to help the places we live in is to be glad we live there." He stopped, and a murmur of emotion and surprise ran through the audience. It was not in the least what they had expected, but it moved them more than what they had expected would have moved them. "'Hear, hear!' a voice cried out in the middle of the hall. An outburst of cheers caught up the cry, and as they subsided Charity heard Mr. Miles saying to someone near him, "'That was a man talking.' He wiped his spectacles. 
Mr. Royal had stepped back from the desk, and taken his seat in a row of chairs in front of the harmonium. A dapper white-haired gentleman, a distant hatchard, succeeded him behind the goldenrod, and began to say beautiful things about the old oaken bucket, patient white-haired mothers, and where the boys used to go nutting. And Charity began again to search for Harney. Suddenly Mr. Royal pushed back his seat, and one of the maple branches in front of the harmonium collapsed with a crash. It uncovered the end of the first row, and in one of the seats Charity saw Harney, and in the next a lady whose face was turned toward him, and almost hidden by the brim of her drooping hat. Charity did not need to see the face. She knew at a glance the slim figure, the fair hair heaped up under the hat-brim, the long pale wrinkled gloves with bracelets slipping over them. At the fall of the branch Miss Balch turned her head toward the stage, and in her pretty thin-lipped smile there lingered the reflection of something her neighbour had been whispering to her. Someone came forward to replace the fallen branch, and Miss Balch and Harney were once more hidden. But to Charity the vision of their two faces had blotted out everything. In a flash they had shown her the bare reality of her situation. Behind the frail screen of her lover's caresses was the whole inscrutable mystery of his life, his relations with other people, with other women, his opinions, his prejudices, his principles, the net of influences and interests and ambitions in which every man's life is entangled. Of all these she knew nothing, except what he had told her of his architectural aspirations. She had always dimly guessed him to be in touch with important people, involved in complicated relations, but she felt it all to be so far beyond her understanding that the whole subject hung like a luminous mist on the farthest verge of her thoughts. In the foreground, hiding all else, there was the glow of his presence, the light and shadow of his face, the way his short-sighted eyes at her approach widened and deepened as if to draw her down into them, and above all, the flush of youth and tenderness in which his words enclosed her. Now she saw him detached from her, drawn back into the unknown, and whispering to another girl things that provoked the same smile of mischievous complicity he had so often called to her own lips. The feeling possessing her was not one of jealousy, she was too sure of his love. It was rather a terror of the unknown, of all the mysterious attractions that must even now be dragging him away from her, and of her own powerlessness to contend with them. She had given him all she had, but what was it compared to the other gifts life held for him? She understood now the case of girls like herself to whom this kind of thing happened. They gave all they had, but their all was not enough. It could not buy more than a few moments. The heat had grown suffocating. She felt it descend on her in smothering waves, and the faces in the crowded hall began to dance like the pictures flashed on the screen at Nettleton. For an instant Mr. Royal's countenance detached itself from the general blur. He had resumed his place in front of the harmonium, and sat close to her, his eyes on her face, and his look seemed to pierce to the very centre of her confused sensations. A feeling of physical sickness rushed over her, and then deadly apprehension. The light of the fiery hours in the little house swept back on her in a glare of fear. She forced herself to look away from her guardian, and became aware that the oratory of the hatchard cousin had ceased, 
and that Mr. Miles was again flapping his wings. Fragments of his peroration floated through her bewildered brain. A rich harvest of hallowed memories, a sanctified hour to which in moments of trial your thoughts will prayerfully return. And now, O Lord, let us humbly and fervently give thanks for this blessed day of reunion, here in the old home to which we have come back from so far. Preserve it to us, O Lord, in times to come, in all its homely sweetness, in the kindliness and wisdom of its old people, in the courage and industry of its young men, in the piety and purity of this group of innocent girls. He flapped a white wing in their direction, and at the same moment Lambert Solace, with his fierce nod, struck the opening bars of Auld Lang Syne. Charity stared straight ahead of her, and then, dropping her flowers, fell face downward at Mr. Royal's feet. End of chapter 13